Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. Sometimes Midrash leaves us with more questions than answers. Today we are listening to When Mercy Trumps Justice, How People Look Like God and Other Rabbinic Tales of Creation, with Rabbi Shai Held. While reading Midrash on the text of human creation, Rabbi Held creates space for us to engage with the ethical and theological questions the Midrash raises. Let's listen. I think it's sort of obvious to say that few verses are better known or better loved in Tanakh than Genesis 126 to 28, in which God makes and then executes God's plan um, to create a human being in God's image. Those verses, however, raise probably more questions than they answer. Some of those questions include, first of all, and probably most obvious, what does that actually mean? What does it mean for a human being to be created in God's image? And it's interesting, I'll just note that if you read contemporary biblical scholarship, this debate goes on and on and on and on. It rages forever. No one is really sure, and we're going to get talk a little bit about how the sages, how Chazal try to answer that question, and what the relationship is between the rabbinic answer, or a rabbinic answer that we'll see here, and contemporary academic answers as well. And then, on a very different plane, a question that has driven interpreters crazy for a very long time, who is God speaking to such that the verse is in the plural? Let us make human being, the human being in our image after our likeness. And it will perhaps not surprise you to know that Christians have often found the plural of these verses extremely salutary. Oh, that's wonderful. There's a hint of the Trinity right there in the opening of Genesis. Whereas Jews, in light of Christianity, have often found themselves on the defensive about those verses, trying to figure out what could be going on there in terms of the instruction of the plan in the plural. Okay, so what I'd like to do is spend the bulk of our time working through a series of comments in Breshit Rabbah, Genesis Rabbah. Now, forgive me um, if I say stuff here. I mean, people are coming with all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of, of levels of experience. So I'm gonna say some stuff that might be obvious to some people, but I think will nevertheless, nevertheless I hope be helpful. Um, for many of the books of Tanakh, for many of the books of the Hebrew Bible, we have a collection that has come to be known as that book, Rabbah, Breshit Rabbah, Shemot Rabbah, Vayikor Rabbah. It is colloquial to speak about the Midrash Rabbah. The Midrash Rabbah is not actually a book. It's, it's a collection. The, the word Midrash Rabbah was invented by printers who wanted to print all these different Midrashic collections together. So Breshit Rabbah is its own book. It is the primary rabbinic collection of Midrashim on Genesis. And the eighth chapter of Breshit Rabbah is focused on these verses about the creation of the human being. Okay, so what we're going to do is read some excerpts from chapter eight of Breshit Rabbah. Chapter eight of Breshit Rabbah obviously does not correspond to the numbers of the chapters of, of Genesis. In other words, the first eight chapters of Reshit Rabbah are all about Genesis chapter one, okay? I hope that that's clear. We start with this, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna translate 
kind of a little bit on the go. The Sansino translation of of, Breshit, of Midrash Rabbah is still in print and available. It is the best thing I think that Sansino did. Um, it is extremely useful in my, in my view, okay? And Midrash, as you'll see, has its own terse way of speaking. So we'll, 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 we'll see what goes on here in particular. Vayomer Elohim na'asadam. And God said, let us make the human being. Biminimlach. With whom did God consult? Now, I'm going to stop right here and say, although this may be far from obvious at first, I think that the very question, with whom did God consult, is already an attempt to answer a question or solve a problem. What problem might it be solving? Well, one of the things the rabbis don't like, I think, is the suggestion that perhaps somebody helped God in the actual act of creation. Adam, let us make, sounds like God is summoning partners for the labor of the actual creation. But in fact, say the rabbis by asking this question, what God is doing here is consulting, not co-creating, okay? Um, so that's, that I actually think is, is actually quite important. Give me a nod if you understand what I just said. Just wanna make sure we're all kind of doing okay here, okay? So, so already the question is a stacking of the deck in order to deal with an anxiety that the text raises. Oh, did God have partners in the making of humans? Who could that have been? Oh, no, 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 no. We're not talking about partners in creation here. We're talking about counselors, advisors, something to that effect, okay? Beminimlach. So the, the first answer is Rabbi Yeshua B'Shem Rabbi Levi Amar. So Rabbi Joshua, son of Levi, says, God consulted with the work of the heavens and the earth. This is a parable. Mashal is one of the most important words in Midrash. It is when you essentially construct a parable. One of the things the rabbis do incessantly is compare God with all of the appropriate caveats intended to various human leaders, people in power, people in positions of authority, so that people can, so that the reader or listener can sort of understand a little bit what God's thought process might be, okay? M probably most frequently you'll find the phrase, mashalim melech basar vadam. It is a parable to a flesh and blood ruler as opposed to the divine ruler. But here, so here we have Mashalimelech, a parable to a king, Shahayulo Shne Sanklitim. Sanklitim, I think, is a is is Greek word for senators, counselors. So he had two counselors. And and the this this person would consult his senators, this king would consult his senators constantly. One of the things I wonder here, I hope this is not a midrash on a midrash. But I wonder whether the reason that God is imagined as consulting with the works of the heaven and the earth is precisely because of an awareness that the creation of the human being will have a major impact on the heavens and the earth in, in their entirety. In other words, you can't bring in someone who's going to affect other people's lives without, or you shouldn't, without consulting them first. There's a kind of fascinating environmental climate change midrash to be made on this midrash. First, God says to the heavens and the earth, hey, I, we should talk about this because this is going to matter. Not just, it's not just, you can't just create a human being and say they're only going to affect each other. That's not what it means to create a human being. Create a human being, everything's going to be impacted. 
Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman Amar, so another rabbinic sage, Shmuel Bar Nachman, Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman says, kol yom vayom limlach. God consulted with the works of each day separately, I think he means. San um, an assessor in, in, in Roman culture, an associate. Um, now, I wonder, again, the rabbis often do not tell you what animates them. Here, here's what you will very rarely find in Midrash, which both makes studying Midrash hard and lots of fun. You will never, almost never have, not, not never, but rarely have the second voice in a discussion say, here's what makes me uncomfortable about the first voice. You then have to do the work of figuring out what's the difference between these two positions. Usually, I think you can say, you will not just have, oh, you say it that way, I like this image better without a meaningful distinction being made between them. Usually it's not just, oh, I illustrate it this way, you illustrate it that way. It's usually, I think, a suggestion that something about the first image leaves the person who offers the second image somewhat uncomfortable. And I wonder here, I really, I don't think anybody knows, I wonder here if that's the case, that the second view thinks of God consulting the heavens and the earth all together is giving away too much authority to the people God, to, to the to the people, quote unquote, that God consults with. And that consulting each day separately is a more manageable process with God firmly in control of the conversation. In other words, image number two arguably cedes less authority than image number one. Okay, so that's possibility number two. Now, Rabbi Ami, the third view, I think um, is going to be in a way the most protective of God's total sovereignty. And he says, Rabbi Ami Omer, Billy Bonimlach. He consulted with his own heart. Right? In other words, I'm not, what do you mean consulting? I'm not consulting with people other than God. I'm God. Billy Bonimlach. A king who had a palace that was constructed by an architect. But when he saw what the architect had constructed, he was displeased. It was not pleasurable to him. Who should he be upset with? Who should he yell at if he doesn't like the construction? Not on the architect. Ah, that's why it says before the flood, and God was upset. God was upset, as it were, in his heart, which is being read here. That's why I misread it for a minute. As Alibo, God was upset with God's self. Now, here's there's something that I want to just mention that I think is interesting and worth thinking about. Whether an image that first sounded, as I said, like it was protecting God's sovereignty, also ends up in a way, quote unquote, backfiring, in that if God didn't consult with anybody else, then God has no one else to blame when it's time for the world to fall apart, right? If you don't consult, the fault lies with you. Who should God be mad at? Should God be mad at the heavens and the earth? Should God be mad at Monday's constructions, Tuesday's constructions, Wednesday's constructions? Or should God be frustrated with God's self? Because God blew it here in some way, okay? Um, by the way, for those of you who have Hebrew or Aramaic, Atmaha, that word that we just passed, 
Atmaha is essentially the equivalent of what we call question mark. Tmiha means question, even in modern Hebrew. So lo al adrichal, what it says here, ardechal, but we're, okay, lo al adrichal, question mark, atmaha, that's literally the work that that does. Remember, rabbinic texts are not usually punctuated. These commas are, um, I don't know, some guy at Zephariah probably. Amar Rav Asi, we have another position. It's a parable to a king who made himself some, who did some business using um, an agent or an intermediary and he lost his money. Who should he be upset with? Not with the agent. This is why God was as it were, upset with God's self. Now, I will say, I'm not totally sure what the relationship is between the fourth image and the third one. That is to say, is the fourth image animated by, driven by a discomfort with the third one? What it is about the third image, the architect that bothers the intermediary, I'll give you my suggestion. And then in good Jewish form, I'll tell you what I don't like about my suggestion. Okay, so welcome, welcome to the, the, the crazy world of my inner life. So <laughs> you have here, on the one hand, the image of an architect is bothersome because what do you mean an architect? Is there somebody other than God who's constructing the plan? Oh, an agent is better because an agent, you just tell the agent what to do and the agent does it. The agent is an implementer, whereas the architect is a designer. However, the problem with that is if the architect is actually God's own heart, then what's the problem with using the image of architect? The English translation says that God blames the agent. How do we get back to God's heart? Well, the issue is that the agent is God's heart, or, or say that better. The architect and the agent are God's heart. The, the one God's consults with is God's own heart. You know what it's almost like? It's almost like a kind of royal we, which is a consultation with self. Although I think actually some historians think a royal we is me and God, which would be a funny thing for God to be saying. Let's look at um, paragraph number two. Now, this is going to move us into, I think these are among the most well-known and cited midrashim in later Jewish literature. It's going to take these verses as an opportunity to offer a set of reflections on the relationship between justice and mercy, hence the title of this session, and how the tension between justice and mercy is reflected in the process of creation as the sages imagine it. Now, just a kind of one sentence way into this debate, I wanna say something that is probably obvious, but I think is useful for thinking about. The rabbis have no better way of saying that there is an irreducible, almost totally unsolvable tension between two things than to say that even God struggles to figure out how to negotiate between them. So if you think about the image with which I'm guessing you're familiar about how God on Yom Kippur, you know, we, or Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we're trying to convince God to get up from the chair of ju judgment and sit on the chair of mercy instead. This image of God not being sure where to sit is a way of saying even God is not always sure how to choose between justice and mercy. That tension runs deep. It may run deeper than almost any tension in the universe as a whole, right? Again, imagine, I mean, I just want to sort of make this clear, right? 
for a rabbi to say, God has trouble with this. I mean, I literally cannot imagine a cultural metaphor that more powerfully talks about how irreducibly problematic something is than that, okay? So, and, and, and as we'll see, as we go through the next few paragraphs, that's what's going to emerge as well. There's a lot of amazing Rosh Hashanah sermons that are potentially cooking in, in a text like this. Um, and not, I don't mean just sermons for rabbis, I mean just in our own reflections on Shuvah and thinking about how to make our way through the world. Okay, so let's look at, let's look at section two. Amar Rabbi Brechia, Rabbi Brechia said, when the Blessed Holy One was about to create Adam Livrot at Adam Harishon, to create the first person, God saw God saw that both righteous and wicked people would emerge from him. Amar, and God was stuck with a dilemma. If I create this person, then there are going to be wicked people who emerge from him. But if I don't create him, there won't be righteous people. So I want righteous people. Here's, here's the fascinating, the creational dilemma as this Midrash imagines it. I can't have righteous people without getting wicked people also. Right, fascinatingly, by the way, if we wanted to turn the rabbis into philosophers, it seems like they are not open to the possibility that God has the power to create people who will all be good. Human freedom is an assumption here and what philosophers would call meaningful freedom, freedom that actually impacts the way things go. God does not have the option. Divine omnipotence does not include the possibility of forcibly creating human beings who are all going to be good. I mention this because in 20th century philosophy, this is like a major debate to the present day. Can you imagine a world in which God has the power to create people who all freely choose the good? I hope that sentence was, was followable, okay? So, what did God do when God was faced with this dilemma? He fleeked Darkanshel Rishaimi Kineged Panav. God said, I'm not going to look at that. You can, can you imagine yourself, you know, in some situation with your kids where you cover your eyes if, you have, if you've been blessed with kids and you say, I don't want to know, right? That's almost like the image of God. I don't, I don't want to know. Don't tell me, okay? God cast away the wicked from God's eyes. God didn't want to look. And instead, God clung to, God pulled to himself the attribute of, of mercy. Mercy is often turned into a hypostasis. I wish I knew how to explain that word in English. So God, as it were, casts aside the rishaim. And, and, and holds mercy close and creates man, creates the human being. This is what it means when scripture says in the first Psalm, this is a beautiful Midrash. The, um, Psalm 1 says, God knows or, or cherishes or loves the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will be destroyed. Here it means God knows, that is God keeps in God's consciousness the ways of the righteous, but the ways of the wicked God casts aside. Now, this is not, you might say, a philosophical solution to the problem, 
If you have two choices and your solution to the dilemma is to say, don't tell me about that, right? That's not what you might call a philosophical resolution, which I think is interesting and is a way of imagining, which is sort of fascinating in its own terms, that God knows, God wants human beings to exist, whether that's God's love, God's desire for companionship in some way, but somehow God knows what the answer is, as it were, before the dilemma. God doesn't deny the dilemma, at least not at first, but God doesn't solve the dilemma either. God ends up pushing the dilemma, as it were, out of God's eyesight, okay? Now, this is a strange image. So not surprisingly, you then have Rabbi Hanina Loamar came. Rabbi Hanina, he didn't say that. He said something else. Rather, Ela at the moment when um, God came to create the first human, God, again, that word nimlach, consulted with the ministering angels and sent to them, and here you should add a question mark, right? Should we do this? Amrulo, and they said to God, Adam Zemativo, this being that you want to create, what's it like? How's that? This is I if I wanted to torture you, I would say, okay, class over. I want you all to break into pairs and answer the question, Adam Zemativo. What are humans like? Right? Spend the rest of your life conjuring an answer to that question with all its complexity. So what, what did God answer? Amar lahen, tzadikim menu. And what did God say? God tricked them a little bit. Or God gave them a half answer. God said, oh, you know what, this, what, what these people are like? What people are like? There are righteous among them. So instead here of God, as it were, casting the righteous out of God's own sight, which is theologically problematic. What do you mean, God, I don't want to see? Instead, what God says is, I'm not going to tell the angels about this. So committed is God to creating the human. And again, you can ask, why is God so invested in that? Why does God want humans to exist so badly? Is it grace, love? Is it desire for, the, for companionship? Whatever it is that God chooses not to tell the angels the whole story. And hadahu dichdiv, this is what it means, ki yodeya Hashem derech tzadikim. Yodeya here is taken to be, even though it's not, in the Hifiel, God makes known the ways of the righteous, Odia Hashem derech tzadikim l'malachei hasharet, v'derech rishayim toved, but God did not tell them. One of the things that the second image is solving is how can an omniscient God, as it were, push things out of its mind? The answer is God doesn't push this out of God's own mind. God pushes this out of, as it were, the consciousness of the angels. Okay? God told them about the good, but God didn't tell them about the evil. Now, this is a fascinating image. If God had told them, then the aspect of judgment, the quality of justice would have said, no way. Now, remember, the quality of judgment is on some level part of God, which means maybe God wouldn't have been able to create them. 
Okay, so this is really, really interesting. One of the questions that I think a midrash like this raises is when, if ever, perhaps often, is it okay to only consider part of the story in making a decision? When is it okay to say the good that comes out of it is worth the cost of the bad? And then implicitly also, when is it not okay? So I don't know if this is right. I, I wonder about this. I always wonder with Midrashim that imagine justice and mercy totally separately. And for that matter, Sadiqim and Rishaim totally separately. There are the righteous, the Carlo Worrells of the world, and there are the wicked, the shy helds of the world, right? Is it, is it, that really it's the case that these Midrashim imagine that you can divide the world evenly between the wicked and the righteous? Or are we then allowed or invited to then meditate on what happens when those categories are actually intermingled? Meaning, I don't, I don't know that this Midrash really wants to imagine that in the world as, as, as the Midrash sees it, there are good people and there are bad people and that's the end of the story. As opposed to there is good and bad in people. I think maybe this image is drawn this way to make the point more stark rather than to simplify humanity into two simple categories. God is more driven by mercy and the embrace of love than the angels are. The angels see the reality of evil and they say, it might not be worth it. Don't do this. And God says, good trumps evil. The good, ma the, the good makes the evil that I'll have to tolerate worth it. Even in heaven, there's a debate on that point. We'll leave it there because I'm not, I'm not sure. And, and again, with a Midrash like this, we have to wrestle. I mean, again, one of the things Midrashim almost never do is say, okay, let's sit down now and talk about the philosophical implications of what we're doing. But it's, it's crucial to understanding them, I think, that we stop and ask what's really at play. Okay, let's read 8.3. This next paragraph may well be the most famous paragraph from Beishit Rabbah, okay? And it's related, as we'll see in a second, to the one we just read. Amar Rabbi Simon, Rabbi Simon says, At the moment when God was about to create the first person, the angels divided themselves into groups, and parties, right? They were totally divided. The angels began to fight about this. Some of them said, Do not do this. Let, let him not be created. And the other half are saying, do it, do it, right? So you have this, this fundamental debate here. And this is the meaning of the verse, according to this Midrash, of the verse, the famous verse in Psalm 85. Love and truth met. I'm going to translate here the literal meaning. Love and truth met. Sedek v'shalom nashaku, justice and peace kissed. This midrash is deliberately misreading two of these words. Not misreading, but yeah, I guess you could say misreading. Chesed ve'emet nifgashu, rather than it meaning positively that they meet, nifgashu can sometimes mean that they met for battle, that they, they bumped up against each other, they collided. Sedek v'shalom, nashaku, rather than the usual meaning of kiss, this is being taken, I think, from the word neshek, meaning weaponry. They got ready to fight. That is to say there was a fight 
between chesed, love, and shalom on the one hand, and emet and tzedek, um, truth and justice on the other. What do I mean? Chesed omer yibare. Loving kindness says, create him. Human beings do amazingly generous, big-hearted things. They care for each other in times of need. The emet omer, but truth said, al yibare. Are you nuts? Shikulo shkarim. Don't create him. He lies like nonstop. And then we go on. Sedek Omer, justice says, Yibare, create him. I, I, I might have just said it backwards a minute ago, but Sedek says, justice says, create him. And it's actually not justice here. Sedek is here being taken in the, in the meaning of, of staka, righteousness, or even generosity. Shuoset stakot. Chesed and Sedek here are a pair. Human beings do that. Human beings are people who do incredibly incredible acts of kindness. But says truth, they're also liars. But says peace, shalom omer al yibare kitata. They are all arguments. I have heard that there are people who go to shuls and bicker with each other. I've never seen it, but I've heard it, right? And so peace says, what's wrong with you? Don't create them. Why would you create that which going to increase bickering and, and strife in the world? So what does God do? God has these angels and they're fighting. And it seems like, and I think this is important for the Midrash, they are both making good points. They are both saying things about humans that are fundamentally true. You're right. This is the case. Masa Kadosh Baruch What did God do? Natal emet v'hishlicho la'aretz. God took truth and tossed it out of heaven. I want to come back to this image in a minute. This is one of the boldest, most provocative images I think we have in rabbinic literature. God didn't say, you're wrong. This is another version of God casting something away from God. God said, get out of here. I don't want to hear it. This is how we should understand a verse of Daniel. This, by the way, is one of the things that makes Midrash possible, is that these people all knew Tanakh by heart so much so that they could sculpt verses to mean different things in different contexts. So, vatashlech emet artza, and you cast truth earthward. Now, I want to say something here that um, is perhaps not going to elicit everyone's agreement, but I, I, I really do think this is true. This is as close as you're going to come in a rabbinic midrash to saying, that the tension between justice and mercy is ultimately not unresolvable, at least not for God. If God has to choose, ultimately God chooses mercy. In other words, it's, God could have said to Chesed, you get lost. I will not create a being who is a liar. I won't do it. Instead, God says, you know what, truth, and by extension, I think peace, Go away. God's desire to create the human, to belabor the point from before, whether that's a function of God's love and grace, whether that's a function of God's desire for companionship, whatever it might be, that's not what these Midrashim are explicitly about in any case. What you have here is this fascinating thing that suggests that at a certain point, mercy, love, grace, all of that category of emotions and virtues comes first. 
Now, to journey very far afield for just a moment, um, I thought of actually making the class about this, but I wanted to cover a little more ground in the Midrash. Some care ethicists, philosophers who emphasize the centrality of care in, 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 in the moral life, which overlaps not totally, but significantly with feminist ethics, some care ethics ethicists will say, obviously mercy comes first because no human being can care about justice without having first been the recipient of amazing grace and love. You can't raise a person to care about the world without first showering them with love and attention. That's what every baby needs. Babies need mercy before they can care about justice. And theologically, one of the things that I've argued is the fact that the very first thing God does, creation of the world, is more about mercy than justice, suggests that that's a theological claim too and not just a claim of care ethics. I don't mean by that to suggest that, oh, the love, the, the mercy justice thing is solved. No, the mercy justice thing is painful even for God, as I said at the outset. But it seems to me at least here, and feel free in the chat to post if you think I'm wrong here, um, that there is a prioritization here, even if it's a hesitant prioritization. Now, but the angels are not done. Amru malachei hasharet, the angels said to the blessed holy one, ribona olamim, master of the world, what are you doing humiliating your own seal? That's what I think um, it might, there are other things it might mean. Rashi and others think it means seal. Jastro, if you look it up, thinks it actually means the chief of the court ceremony, i.e. the angel of truth. But in any case, it's usually been read by Jews to mean God's seal. And as you may be familiar with the Talmud in Masechet Shabbat, I believe it's page 55, says, The seal of God is truth. So the angels say to God, how can you cast truth out of heaven? You're degrading your own seal. Meaning, and, and just understand, this is not just some kind of mythological image. The idea here is, God, truth is fundamental to who you are. What do you mean? How are you just going to cast it out of heaven so that you can create people? That can't be how it works. Let truth come back from the earth. This is what the Psalm 85 means. Truth will um, blossom forth from the earth. I am not sure about this, but I think that it may be that the answer, hence truth, and hence it is written, let truth rise up from the earth, may be a way of saying I'm depending on humans to resurrect truth in addition to mercy. I'm not certain about that, but that's what I think might be going on here. Okay, now skip just a couple of lines. I just want to see something here that is interesting. And this in a way pushes up against our whole notion of God is genuinely consulting. Ravuna Rabash al Tiporin Amar, Ravuna the elder of Sephorus said, God saw one group of angels fighting with another, another group of angels fighting with still another, and God said, While you guys are bickering, I'm just gonna make him. Okay? Amar Lahen, God said to them, What are you arguing about? Adam, I already did it. This Midrash solves the na'ase adam in a very creative way. Remember how we've talked about the words na'ase adam are disturbing? Let us, 
This Midrash vocalizes the word na'aseh adam, not as na'aseh, but as na'asa, meaning in the past tense, it was already made. Na'asa adam bitzalmenu kidmutenu. A human being has been made already in our image after our likeness. This preserves God's sovereignty. This solves the problem of um, God consulting with, with, with other parties. Who could that be? It runs the problem, of course, of revocalizing the word as found in Genesis. I just want to briefly look at section four, which you see, if you look at the English, is 8.8. Eight. I want to just see here, Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman B'Shem Rabbi Yonatan Amar, Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman said in the name of Rabbi Yonatan, B'Sha'ah, at the time, there should be an ayin and a hey there. Shaya Moshe Kotevet Torah, when Moshe was writing the Torah at God's dictation, he would write down all of what God told him about, you know, the creation of the world in Genesis 1. When he got to this verse, which says, let us make the human being in our image after our likeness. He said to God, why are you writing a verse that is an invitation to the heretics? By the way, I think heretics here is two groups. Persians who believe, who are Zoroastrians and believe in two gods, and Christians who are Trinitarians. Why would you speak in the plural? And God says something very interesting from a rabbinic perspective. Amarlok tov, Write it down. Whoever wants to mistake what I mean will mistake it. I think that basically means something like, I think, you know, there's no way to protect against misreading of a text when people are committed to it. Now, that's not exactly a good answer, but it's an interesting answer about how heresy works, right? You can always find a text or you can always find a reading of a text. God's answer for why God wants to say it, though, is just gorgeous, ethically. God says the following. Let me tell you what I have in mind here. Moshe, Moshe, listen to me. Aren't I going to end up having great people and relatively insignificant politically and powerfully people who emerge from him? If it's time for a person of great authority to consult with someone of lesser authority, and he says, Why should I consult with plebeians? So he should be answered, Learn from your creator. God created everything on heaven and on earth. God consulted with those who have far less authority, so should you. This is the opposite of, people can find better words for me, elitism, political snobbery, authoritarianism. God says, the reason why I want to speak in the plural is that I want people to know that I consulted with the angels because I was not pompous enough to say I don't have to consult with anybody. I'm God. If I, who am God, and really don't have to consult with anyone, consult with someone, so should you. You see here now, this is amazing. Genesis 1, God's plural 
becomes a kind of lesson in ethics and virtue. So it's really an interesting, an interesting answer. Okay, I'm going to skip now. I'm going to skip all the way to text number six, which is near the end. And if I have time, I'll say something about the other ones. And I want to just take a couple minutes to introduce this. So I said at the outset, as you'll recall, that people have been debating literally since before the time of the sages of the Talmud to the present day, what does it mean to say human beings are created in the image of God? In modern, or I should say, in contemporary biblical scholarship, there tend to be two approaches to this question. One is what I'll call the human being as vice regent. That the meaning of Tzalem Elohim is you are appointed as a human being to help rule over the rest of creation. That is when God says, Uridu bidgatayam, and the human being will rule over the fish of the sea, etc. That is not just a consequence of being created in the image of God. That is the meaning of being created in the image of God. To be created in the image of God is to be made a ruler. Now, if you're interested on the Hadar website, you can find various lectures of mine about what that does and doesn't mean about what human beings are allowed and not allowed to do in terms of exploiting and using what is under their, their control. There is a lot, a lot, a lot to say about that. Okay, that's possibility one. Possibility two is probably scandalous to some people, although I think it's also incredibly rich and interesting. Possibility two is human beings look like God. Let us make the human being in our image, after our likeness. That means what it sounds like. Now, if you are living after the time of Maimonides, which we all are 800 years later, you may take it as kind of mother's milk that God doesn't have a physical form. I'm not sure that the sages of the Talmud thought that. I don't think they were crude and that they thought God had a body like you have a body or I have a body, but they may have thought that in some sense, God was God resembled a person partially because they took Genesis 1, 26 to 28. I will say, I'm going to say that I'm going to regret this word semi-literally. Now, before we go on and look at this Midrash, I want to just say, I am fascinated by the idea. Can we maintain the idea that God does not have a body and at the same time embrace what is implicit here, which is that when we talk about Selim Elohim, we are not talking about some aspect of the person, some ethereal quality. We're talking about the entire embodied person. So when I look at Wendy Siegel, I'm not saying, oh, you have some spiritual part that is God's image in you. No, you flesh and blood, heart, soul, eyes, shoulders, toes, all of it is Selim Elohim. The embodied person is the image of God. And I think there's a lot to say there about the beauty and power of that. And by the way, that's why, although it's not the Midrash we're going to look at, Hillel can famously say in, in Vayikra Rabbah, when I take a shower, I am doing a mitzvah. I am polishing the divine image. Incredible image. So that care of the body becomes a truly sacred task. Okay, the embodied human is a Tzalem Elohim. Now, what I want to suggest, I, 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 I'm, I'm nervous about saying this because I haven't done the research to quite defend this all the way down. I think that the overwhelming view of the sages is that Tzalem Elohim means at minimum 
some physical resemblance between people and God. That is the second modern academic view. And one of the ways I would prove that to you, and this is based on the scholarship of a man named Yair Lorberbaum at Barilan University, one of the ways I would prove that to you is that the standard rabbinic translation of Tselem is an Aramaic word that is in fact not Aramaic at all, but Greek. The rabbis translate Tselem as ikonia, which is the Aramaicization of the word icon, which is a physical representation. Ikonia shalakadosh baruchu an icon of the Blessed Holy One. Now, since I only have five minutes, let's read this now, six inside. I realize that what I just said in the last four minutes could be about 19 classes. So, I, you know, I thank you for bearing with me in the shorthand. But my goal of this class, in a way, is just to like give you a sense of how much Midrash opens up when you read it slowly. How many questions, tiny and immense, it opens up. So I just saw Sarah's comment, you want those 19 lectures. So there's a 35-page version of that coming in the book that's forthcoming. So let's see now. Amar Rabbi Hoshaya. Rabbi Hoshaya said, this is just, this image will shock you. When God created the first person, the angels got confused. And they wanted to say, holy, meaning they looked at a person and thought, oh my God, that's God. Now, what could that possibly mean if the rabbis don't think that there's some visual form that God has? Mashalimelech. So what, how does this explain the story that's about to unfold? It is a parable to a king and an aperkos, a king and, a, and a, a kind of a political, a powerful political subject to the king governor or something like that. Um, um, they were sitting in a chariot. Domino, domino meaning domini, king. I mean, God, right? They wanted to say to the king, domini, they looked at the king and the governor and they said, I can't tell which is which. Imagine if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were identical twins. And you want to say, greetings, Mr. President, but you don't know which one is which. This is the rabbis being as audacious as you can get. Because we're talking about God and a human being. And the angels, the angels can't tell them apart. What did the king do? The king freaks out. <laughs> so the king took the governor and threw him out of the chariot so that people knew that the king was the king and the governor was not the king. And everybody knew that the one that got tossed out of the chariot was only a governor. I'm going to tie this midrash to the two meanings in a second. Okay? Kach, similarly, when God created the first person, it's exactly the same. It's not exactly, it's not what a parable is. It's similar. What did God do? He God put Adam to sleep. Ah, oh, he fell asleep. That can't be God. God doesn't sleep. People sleep. And so at that point, the Adua called Shehu Adam. People knew the difference between God and a person. Another way of saying this is, a person who's embodied in a fragile, limited body 
is a person. Whatever the divine body is, it's totally different. Hadahu this is what it means when Isaiah says, Stop paying so much attention to the man in whose nostrils is breath. This turns out to be what God was saying to the ministering angels. Please stay with the parable for a minute. What is the parable that was chosen here? A king and his governor. That's the first meaning of Tzalem Elohim, the king and his vice regent. In other words, this Midrash is aware of both interpretations that modern scholars have come to on their own. On the one hand, that Tzalem Elohim means that the person who's appointed to rule on behalf of God. And Tzalem Elohim also means the person who looks like God. How do the rabbis capture those two meanings? Oh, lo and behold, there's a governor who looks like God or a governor who looks like the king. That was quick, more quick than I would have wanted to. Okay, so I, I leave you here. I want to honor the time, but I, I, I wanted to sort of show you here both just how extraordinary this collection of Midrashim and Parshachet is, and also I hope to demonstrate a little bit about how certain Midrashim can be read. That if you read them slow enough and you ask, you know, sort of what are the questions that are underlying the questions that are asked? What's the unspoken question beneath the spoken question? You often end up in some of the richest ethical and theological places you can get to in the Jewish tradition. Okay, thanks all. This episode of Tashma was produced by Jeremy Tabak and Sam Greenberg and edited by Evan Feist. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It has been a pleasure to learn with you.